Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's How Do We Fix It with Richard and Jim. Fixing medical mistakes that kill 5,000 Americans a week. James Lieber. The big frontier in medical error is diagnostic error. These studies that show a couple hundred thousand or a quarter million deaths don't include diagnostic error. This is a crisis that we shouldn't be having and that the taxpayers paid not to have. And until it's worked out, people are at risk. People will die from this. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? Jim, I find this pretty shocking that medical mistakes are the third largest cause of death in America. Yes, there's a very recent study confirming this point from two researchers at Johns Hopkins. So, so when you go to the hospital, you hope to be cured that in a surprisingly large number of cases, a mistake can actually actually make things worse. Our show is all about fixes and how to solve problems. And our guest is James Lieber. He's the author of the book Killer Care, How Medical Error Became America's Third Largest Cause of Death and What Can Be Done About It. James joins us via Skype from Pittsburgh. Thanks for joining us. So talk to us about why medical mistakes have become one of the leading causes of death after heart disease and cancer. How did we get here? The truth is, it's not a new problem, but there's been more attention that's been placed on it. And that attention started in the 80s and 90s. There were celebrity deaths that shocked people. Yeah, the most uh, most recently we had the Joan Rivers example in New York, for instance, where she went in for a fairly routine procedure and died. Same thing happened to Andy Warhol. Same thing happened to John Wayne and the Shah of Iran. And then there were infamous medical errors involving average people, uh, one of whom was a woman named Betsy Lehman. She was the medical writer at the uh, Boston Globe she had a bone marrow transplant at a very famous cancer center, the Dana-Farber Cancer Center, but they gave her an overdose of chemotherapy, and she died from that. That kind of news had been obscured by uh, medicine's great triumphs over disease, 
people really trusted medicine, really trusted hospitals. And finally, they started to record these errors and, and uh, studies started to come out showing that they were very prevalent. Now, according but, to the most recent estimates, uh, something like 250,000 people, and it could be a lot more, die in because of medical mistakes every year in the United States. Why don't we have a better sense of of this problem? Well, there are a number of reasons. One is medicine's great prestige, which is deserved. A lot of people have become unhappy with healthcare. Uh, in some polls, a very high percentage of people, maybe fifty percent, have either experienced these errors or had them in their families and personal circles of friends. Yeah, and it's a reasonable fear. But what's really it is. what's great about your book, you know, our show is called How Do We Fix It? And uh-huh. and your book is very focused on concrete solutions, not just bemoaning the problem or encouraging everyone to just do everything better, but concrete areas. And the first one is structured handoffs in the hospital. Explain what that means. What happens typically is that uh, a resident that's a, a physician but still in training will be in charge of a number of people on a floor and shifts change. He or she will turn over the cases to somebody else. And historically, the handoffs have not been well structured. Uh, this also happens when people go through steps in the emergency room. And the reasons for that are that the necessary information doesn't go from one provider, whether a doctor or a nurse, to the next. But when shifts change, it's very important, especially with very ill patients, to be sure everybody knows exactly what medical actions are being taken and vital signs. And this is most important, which is what are the potential crises and how do we plan for them? And if you know how to plan and the team knows what to do, then they're ready to fight it. Are, are many mistakes made when, for instance, uh, a patient is transferred from surgery to a different form of care or when there is a shift change? Yes, that is a, a problematic time. And it's, it's really, really important that a provider not grab a patient and a file whether it's a hard file or an electronic file, without grounding from the last person who had it. Then mistakes happen. So there was a a big study in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2014 about structured handoffs among residents. And when they did have structured handoffs, serious errors went down by 30%. Uh, and that was with rich and poor patients in a variety of hospitals, and it's what needs to be done. So if you go so, into a hospital, you want to have structured handoffs. Now, everybody who's been in a hospital, not every, many people who have been in a hospital or have been with people in the hospital will have experienced a situation like a new doctor will come on and he or she will prescribe the same amount of medication that had been canceled on the last shift. Right. So actually, your second recommendation deals with this problem, 
and with the complex information that, that needs to be handed off, and that's to bring in the pharmacists at every stage of care. Well, I think the pharmacists have to make rounds on patients with the doctors. And I mean, it was a big reform of 20th century medicine to bring the nurses into the rounds. The nurses actually know the patients best. But But why bring in the pharmacist? Yeah. Because the pharmacists have a really good knowledge, a detailed knowledge of drugs, how they interact with other drugs how they uh, affect infants, very old people, uh, how they affect different body types, body mass, body weight. And it's just so much more detailed and sensitive than doctors and nurses have. And when, when there is what is called decentralized pharmacy or clinical pharmacy, medication errors go down dramatically. And don't isn't part and, of the problem here that a lot of us have this model of medicine of the, the all-knowing doctor making wise right. choices. But in fact, there are so many more medications that actually worked. You know, when I was a kid, there weren't really that many medications other than antibiotics you could give to people compared to today. No one who's not a, a specialist can understand it in the depth that's necessary. And it's really important because actually most people in hospitals, certainly after uh, midlife, are probably experiencing multiple problems. And that presents real medication challenges. And, And nobody can do it the way clinical pharmacists can. So another thing is, they, it's really important that they be there for the initial orders um, of medications because those initial orders are very difficult to countermand. Uh, they seem to live in the system for a long time. So what got you so interested in this issue? Well, a good colleague and mentor of mine died in 2001 uh, of a medication error. Uh, He got 10 times as much of an anti-rejection drug after a lung transplant as he should have gotten, and he died. It was a great tragedy. So there's a lot that can be done. We can make real progress. So so let me me ask you about um, many people who go into the hospital die or get even sicker because of infections. What can be done at many hospitals— that's not being done now to reduce infection? Well, unfortunately, we're somewhat sporadic about infection control. And there are very well-recognized evidence-based guidelines for how to clean instruments. Down to the number of, of minutes or seconds of contact time that the instrument needs to have with the particular disinfectant or sterilant. Um, There are these standards that have been worked out over more than half a century. They work. They work. And if if hospitals would simply follow them, hospitals and and long-term care facilities, or people call them nursing homes still, if they would follow them, the amount of infection would go down dramatically. Unfortunately, they are not followed consistently and they are only followed in the breach when there's an, uh, an outbreak of something like tuberculosis or Legionnaire's disease. 
so what I'm hearing is that a lot of times the information is there, but the management of the information isn't isn't effective. The handoffs aren't good enough, or there's information about how to keep things sterilized. And I think your key recommendations is it's about medical health records, and it's about making electronic health records interoperable. What does that mean? Well, everybody has hopes for electronic medical records that they're they're the next big thing. Um, And if you had good medical records, if somebody has a, an accident, a, the car accident comes in unconscious to a hospital in New York and they're from New Jersey, you get all their records together and you know certain things about them, like what drugs they have on board or what particular conditions they have or what allergies they have. And you can treat them more safely. Now, there was a about billion that Congress allocated at the recommendation of the Obama administration in the Recovery Act for interoperable medical records. So what's what's happened since then? I mean, has that those $36 billion been spent wisely? No. And the reason is they were spent mainly on providers who gave hospital systems and medical practices closed source software that was not modifiable. And and it's a huge problem that particularly people uh, who are operating in one hospital system that has a rival where the person was the last time, their their computers won't talk to each other. Yeah, that seems outrageous to me that, that this happens. That you can't just simply have a a credit card in your in your in your wallet that has all your medical records on it. If that's something you want, it's entirely outrageous. And the way it was done, and the way the money was wasted, is probably the biggest healthcare scandal of our times. You know, say what you will about the Affordable Care Act. It hasn't done this type of harm. It hasn't wasted this amount of money. Well, Congress, to its credit, has figured this out in 2015 and did pass a law which basically said the records have to be interoperable in four years. You got to fix that. So explain what you mean by interoperable. Yeah, it, it means that the, the, the systems uh, uh, don't talk. There are firewalls, and you can't modify them, particularly if you're outside the system. So I would just say that these are, uh, these are systems that don't communicate. But this is a crisis that we shouldn't be having and that the taxpayers paid not to have. And until it's worked out, um, people are at risk. People will die. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi from this. So a lot of your recommendations are on the hospital level, on the policy level. But what can we do as individuals if, if we're going into the medical system or someone we care about is going into the medical system? What are some steps that individuals can do to help sidestep these potential problems? Well, one thing that I recommend to people is they get the record of the room that they're going into. Okay? What, what does it's, that mean? It's like a checklist that you get when you buy a used car. When you get a used room, you can see if, uh, number one, you can see if all the critical surfaces were cleaned. You can also see if the person in there had one of these virulent infections like MRSA. I wouldn't take that room. So, But you can ask. You can ask the, the hospital for get, this. Get it. Yeah, you, you're entitled to it. Don't take a room like that unless – the room has been put through NDI, which is no-touch disinfection. Is it worth uh, going and checking the different records of hospitals if, if you have a choice between one hospital and another? And how can you do that? There aren't good comparative infection records yet. There should be. And people who grade and rate hospitals, like U.S. News and World Report, and some of these health grades, people like that, they should actually rate hospitals on infection. Uh, and another thing you can do, and this is really important, sometimes patients bring infection into hospitals. So when you go into a hospital, get yourself screened for infection. See if you are actually infected. If you are, you can be isolated for your treatment. Are some of the medical mistakes that you're talking about come as a result of a physician bias or a lack of, of proper teamwork by physicians? Very, very good question. The answer is yes. The big frontier in medical error is diagnostic error. These studies that show a couple hundred thousand or a quarter million medical error deaths don't include diagnostic error, mainly because most of it occurs outside of the hospital, in the clinic or in the doctor's office. And yes, physician bias is a problem. The classic example is that there's almost a bias against thinking that a woman is having a heart attack. 
But the main thing is that there should be, in medicine, teamwork, including at the diagnostic stage. James Lieber, give me examples or give me at least one example of a hospital that's doing things right and what's been learned as a result of that. I think that there have been many centers of this movement against medical errors. And one of the best has been Johns Hopkins. Are there any specific things that have been done at Johns Hopkins, though, that have been passed on to other hospitals? Any practices? Yes. There are checklists, very simplified checklists for people on uh, ventilators, respirators. Now, these are people who have been historically very prone to infection, but with simplified checklists, infection went down to almost nothing, almost nothing. It had been probably, you know, maybe 10%, but it has gone down to almost nothing. And these studies have been implemented all over the country and in other countries. Uh, Another thing that happened at Hopkins that has spread is rapid response teams. If you're in the hospital and uh, your advocate or you see that there's something really going wrong, you don't have to go through the bureaucracy. You don't have to go from nurse to resident to attending physician to specialist. Immediately, if a family says, for example, that their child is taking a turn for the worst, they will get a specialized response team. So what I'm hearing from you, and it's in a way it's very encouraging, is a lot of the critical things that can be done aren't necessarily a matter of applying really exotic, cutting-edge medical miracles. It's more a matter of very systematically making sure the basics get done to control infection and hand washing and handing off patient information. So as as challenging as this problem is, what I guess my takeaway is that there are solutions right at hand in every hospital. Yes, but let me just add something to that, okay? Everything becomes better if there are cameras around. <laughs> James Lieber, uh, thanks very much. Yes, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Sometimes things that really matter, they can really make the world better, they're not secret. They're not hidden. They're actually kind of obvious. They're just hard to do or they're, or we're not doing them. What I like about James Lieber's book and about his approach is a lot of it is focusing on things that are within the capability of hospitals today. They're not exotic new techniques. Doctors have known they were supposed to be washing their hands since the 19th century, but they still don't always do it carefully enough or frequently enough. Yeah, I think I'm hearing from you maybe a criticism of the way medical stories are covered in the news media in that we are always talking about the latest cutting-edge discovery on this. And some of this stuff, which may seem mundane, may save a lot more lives than than an experimental treatment. Another thing I think is really important is this stuff has to be systematized. What you're seeing in all of his advice, it's not enough to just encourage people like, be better, don't make mistakes, wash your hands more. If they're, if these are not bad people, these are people dedicated to saving lives, they're devoting their lives to it, and yet they're still making little mistakes as we all do as we go through our day. So the solution isn't just to encourage people to be perfect, it's to come up with systems to help them. 
And we'll have his five solutions on our website, howdowefixit.me, a structured handoff in hospitals, bringing in pharmacists, infection controls following the CDC guidelines, diagnostic errors that uh, there should be a much better handling of, of patient diagnosis, and also electronic records making them interoperable. In other words, that uh, we should have one system for all medical records so that there are no firewalls between the different uh, different hospitals. But Jim, I want to ask you about something, and it has nothing to do with the subject we've been talking about. You've just come back from Israel, and, and I missed you over these past couple of weeks. You you went with your band. Tell yeah, me a little yeah. bit so, about what, what you were some doing. Of our, some of our longtime listeners know that I play in a in a American sort of roots uh, roots folk blues band called Spite and Dival, and we did a tour of Israel, two weeks. We played everywhere from Tel Aviv to uh, the Sea of Galilee and all the way down to the Red Sea. What was really interesting for me was traveling around the country. We stayed on kibbutzes. We stayed in people's homes, meeting people. And, you know, Israel is, is a country with so many challenges. Everybody you meet feels like, Please tell people back in the U.S. it's not like what you see on the news. Yeah, because I think a lot of people go, oh, I'm not going anywhere in the Middle East. That's just a a, a whole region of problems. So did you find a lot of hope in Israel? Well, they love to be there and they love their country and they're very patriotic across the political spectrum. You know, I met a lot of people who are very secular they're patriotic, but they're huge critics of the government. They're, they're advocates of arriving at, at, uh, at peace, at a two-state solution with, with the Palestinians in some fashion. But they're also very concerned that, that Israel doesn't get any credit from you know, world governments and, and political leaders around the world. In fact, they're sub, they're, their subjects are so much overt discrimination from you know, uh, universities in Europe and elsewhere. And they're, they're really, really troubled by it. But did I find optimism? You know, it's challenging. An awful lot of people say, well, you know, I've got my escape plan. They're actually they're sure. worried. Uh, you know, I can move to the U.S. I can move to, you know, South America or something if things really get bad. They joke about it, but they're thinking about it. And that's discouraging. So, no, I don't I didn't see that much optimism. I saw perhaps uh, a resignation that, you know, there have been challenges all along. We're going to continue to have challenges. Meanwhile, they live their lives day to day, and their lives are pretty good. I mean, it's it's a booming country. There's a, the tech sector is 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 doing great things. It's a lovely place to live. You know, leaving the political challenges aside, but I I don't see people that I met being optimistic that they're going to be quick fixes to these deep deep problems. What, what's the most surprising thing you found in Israel? How good the food is. <laughs> the food. You, weren't, you didn't have high expectations. No, I didn't have low expectations. But I, you know, the first time I sat down to a classic Israeli breakfast with like four or five different kinds of, of cheese and yogurt and, and, and smoked fish and just all this and amazing pastries and stuff. It was really an eye opener. And we were in people's homes. So it was really nice to, to get a feel for, you know, how regular folks live, including on kibbutzes, which, you know, have faded as a, has playing a central role in Israeli life, but are still part of the natural national culture. And we were on one that had more or less privatized, gone back, you know, they'd kind of given up on the socialist model. And another that was very much uh, still maintaining the traditional socialist model on a very small scale. And some, you know, as you know, I'm I'm a fan of free markets. I'm not a big fan of socialism as a rule, but you got to give these people credit. Instead of trying to take their politics and impose them on other people, they said, we're going to do this experiment with ourselves. We're going to try to live this dream. And a lot of people are still doing it. 
And, you know, with some lots of failures, but also some successes, but it's their own experiment that they're that they're living out in their own lives. Now, I know you had a successful tour. What, what do you do with the band? I mean, you play oh, the. Yeah, I, I play uh, I play a blues style harmonica and I also play concertina, which is like a, a button accordion. And um, and I just, you know, stand around and look cool. On stage. <laughs> Very cool. OK, good to know. It's How Do We Fix It. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we'll be back again next week. Thanks for joining us. Our producers, Miranda Schaefer, and our audio engineer, Denise Barbarita. Here at the beautiful Mono Lisa Studios in Uptown Manhattan. And Davies Content produces this show. We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits. Check us out at DaviesContent.me. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.